I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Andy Levy, former Fox News and CNN HLN guy and current cable news conscientious objector. I'm a former libertarian who now sits pretty comfortably on the left. And I'm producer Jesse Kennedy, and I'm here to make sure things don't go too far off the rails. We're here to have fun, smart conversations with some great guest co-hosts, as well as some of the most knowledgeable and entertaining people in politics, media, and beyond. Our goal is to try to make some sense of our current crazy world, our new abnormal, and hopefully even make you laugh through the tears. Hello, and welcome to another bonus episode of The New Abnormal, and we thank you so much for being here. Joining me now is someone whose credits I can't list because it would leave me, like, literally no time to talk to him. He's been on more TV shows than I can count, in more movies than I can count, he's been the voice of a rat, for God's sakes. His most recent comedy special is called We All Scream. It's available on Netflix as I am speaking. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Patton Oswalt. Patton, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for letting me come on the show. I'm a fan, so this should be fun. Yay. Feel free to tweet that. <laughs> or Mastodon it, or wherever we are next week. Yeah, God knows. I do like to start off these sort of Sunday interviews with some politics, because the new abnormal sure. is a political podcast, as you know. And... You know, some of the Sunday guests get into it and they're really into it. Others, I can kind of sense they just want to get it over with and move on. So we'll see what happens <laughs> here. All right. So my first question is politics. Am I right? Oh, and, and also ladies, take a breather. Guys, back us up. <laughs> yeah, politics. Oh, the word politics should have the in parentheses after it, heavy sigh, unparentheses. <laughs> I have to start putting asterisks instead of the vowels in it or something. Yeah, exactly. Oh, boy. We've got a big midterm elections coming up. We were saying before we started taping that there's a bit of a feeling maybe that something bad is coming down the pike. It's not that I have a feeling something bad is coming down the pike. People seem to openly want something bad to happen. Yeah. It seems like we now live in this age of everything has to top whatever came previous. So, well, what came previous was uh, an insur- an insurrection on the Capitol. So, so for the midterms, well, something crazy has got to happen. It has to keep, and and a lot of this, I think, is fed by various media outlets, both legacy media and a lot of this, the quote unquote independent streaming media that are all fighting for the same. You know, I forgot who said this quote, but. We've got video games and movies and the internet and uh, books, but you know, everyone still has the same 90 minutes. So everyone is competing for that 90 minutes. And if you're in the news business, you want reality amped up because you're competing with some gorgeous video game imagery, some right. astounding blockbuster movies, some you know nonstop Twitter content. You're just constantly competing with that. So you're almost like, Hey, reality, you need to catch up with the fake spectacle. And unfortunately, reality seems to be doing that lately. Yeah. And in particular, there, I, I think you're right. And I think it does go overall for for all of the quote unquote media when I'm, I'm talking about journalism, et cetera. But obviously, there is a particular side of the media that 
really does amplify the worst kinds of voices and itself is made up of the worst kinds of voices in our country. Yeah, this is me being my most paranoid. It feels like a certain, how can I say this? A certain chunk of the intelligentsia and influencers and establishment has seen what's coming in terms of the environment or some bigger collapse that can't really be articulated. So what they're doing is gathering and amassing as much wealth and influence as they can before everything shifts. Because some of the actions of people in entertainment, in politics, in the media, it's the actions of someone who's like, well, I'm starting a diet next Monday. So this week I'm just going to right. <laughs> eat Going like nuts. crazy because yeah. all that's about to go away. And that's what some of the, I mean, you know, the fact that a lot of wealthy people I know are suddenly you know, buying up land in Montana or Ireland or New Zealand. It all seems to be like bolt holes are happening. Again, I'm trying not to be paranoid and jumpy yeah. about it. But when you see other members of the herd starting to twitch and jump, you're like, oh, I think there's something nearby that's coming for us. It's weird. Especially if it's the people at the front of the herd. Exactly. And, and also there, there's just this, there's this embracing of nihilism as a sign of privilege and access of, in other words, in order to show how powerful and privileged I am, I have to show that I don't care right. because this stuff ultimately won't affect me. And so when you see anti-Semitism on the rise, there is a section of Gen Z that's like, well, they're, and, and I, I understand this. It's so horrifying that their only reaction is to laugh at it and wink at it and go, well, who cares? Because there's such bigger, massive things going on on the planet. I think we're wired in to the death of our own environment, that that's why we're reacting the way we are to a lot of the stuff. See, this is why I love having comedians on. <laughs> just, just nonstop laughter and well, lightheartedness. Well, Andy, I just love to come on and give you <laughs> listeners a couple of laughs. You know, we're all wired into Gaia, and because it's dying, uh, our souls are dying. And that's why we laugh at Nazism. <laughs> uh, I love your Gaia chunk. It always, <laughs> always kills. <laughs> The thing is, I agree with everything you just said, and it is really hard not to fall into that that sort of well of nihilism. And I know I get tempted a lot, too, and you just sort of sit there and you're like, well, maybe nothing matters. But I don't ever do it as like, a, oh, I'm happy about this. It's like that. I recognize that that is sort of a sign of defeat. I try to stave it off. It's a mutated version of that thing you do in your 20s when you're like, I'm so afraid of not looking cool right now. If I like something and that thing that I like ends up not being cool, I could lose cool points. So I'm going to take the safe position and say that everything sucks. Right. And that's a thing that you do in your early 20s. But then as you grow older, you're like, well, first, as you get older, and I'm paraphrasing something Bob Hope said, as you get older, you're like, well, I don't care what people think of me. And then when you get to your 60s and 70s, realize nobody was ever thinking of me. I could have just done whatever I wanted. <laughs> Why wasn't I doing that from the get-go? But when you're facing, I think, literal environmental catastrophe, this isn't an, this isn't a, an existential uh, idea right now. This is an actual, there might not be water in a few years. Like there literally might not be water. So be, because of that underlying fear, and, and and it's almost like we're hardening ourselves to this brutal world that's coming. And we're do and and our, our rehearsal for that is to scoff and laugh at racism, homophobia, 
violent attacks on people. You know, the fact that the the fact that there was a violent attack on the husband of the Speaker of the House and no Republican has condemned it. No one has like they're laughing at it and making jokes about it. Like we we really are. We're about to hit a, a really dangerous point right now. No, I think that's absolutely true. On a slightly lighter note uh, on something you just said. Yeah. One of the things that I have sort of realized in the past, I don't know, few years, maybe maybe more than a few years, is one of the nice things about getting older is sort of aging out of the need to be cool. Yes, it's the best. On the other hand, I've also noticed that, A, this doesn't make me any less cool. And if anything, <laughs> I think it makes me cooler. I mean, again, you know, the opposite of, of love isn't hate, it's indifference. And when you truly, <laughs> right. when you reach real indifference, then you're free. But a lot of people that I think right now, this is the age of cruelty for clout, where because they never had anything creative to say or anything genuinely cool or anything that they really liked, they just are turning to performative cruelty as a form of, you know, don't you like edgy comedy? Don't you get it? Oh, I see what you're doing. You you yourself aren't funny. You're just going toward cruelty because that's all you know. That's what you think comedy is. And that actually leads me to a question that I've been asking. I've been trying to ask all of my Sunday, quote unquote, Hollywood guests, uh, <laughs> all of you mucky mucks. Right. So the question is, what do you think of when you hear the phrase cancel culture? Like what comes to mind almost instantly? All I hear is consequences. Well, first off, I love that that people have completely muddled the term cancel culture in that cancel culture started out with people that were actually committing crimes, rapes and assaults, and that were powerful, that weren't paying for them, that are now having to pay for this kind of stuff. And people are trying to go, well, I'm being canceled for what I'm saying. It's like, no, you committed some rapes. I don't think this is a Lenny Bruce situation. I think that you are an actual criminal. Most people that say or do things that are controversial or hurtful or demand an apology that doesn't really seem to affect their career. If anything, it seems like if you lean into it, you have this guaranteed audience of, unfortunately, they're orcs, but they are an audience <laughs> and they will, they'll buy, it's almost like they'll buy your product at um, the the woke and the left wing just to show them. They don't necessarily like your product, right. but they'll buy it just to- To own the libs. Yeah, you know, they'll review bomb your movie, even though they'll never see it, even though they don't really like movies or appreciate music. But if that's the kind of audience you want, if you're purely in it for commerce sake, then that that's a path to go. But for the most part, I, I've never understood this. Like, I will never apologize. I will never, no regrets. I regret tons of, you constantly make mistakes and then you go, right. oh man, my bad. And then you learn and you move along. I've never understood this. I will. Like, I, I think I saw someone saying, at least my kids will know that their father never apologized. Like, that's a legacy to leave. <laughs> right. My kids will know that their father never learned and never grew. Like, like that was that was their thing <laughs> that they were so proud of. It's like, oh, dude. But, but again, because everything is now saved and, oh, I, I got screenshotted. Um, if you make a mistake, then that then you, you're supposed to be defined by that mistake forever. People have screenshot bad things and stupid stuff I've tweeted and go, yeah, that was a stupid thing. I made a mistake. Like You just apologize and roll on for it. But right. I come from that world of I did, you know, years of open mics where I just had horrible sets and right. you ate it. And then you went up the next night and got a little bit better because, you know, a lot of these people, they don't they're not going to ever stick with anything. They're never going to actually build or grow. Their whole thing is, well, I'm just going to own, I'll, I'll own you. Here's a 
here's a photo of a shitty tweet you sent. So there it is. That's you forever. It's like, eh, sorry, no, I actually apologize for that. I'm gonna, I'm just moving on. You know, that that's where you're living. Yeah, it just seems to be the easiest thing in the world is to not is to not apologize for something. Apologizing can be difficult. Yeah, it's real. Tr- yeah. Hey, trust me, apologizing is really difficult. Yeah, and 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 also it, it's something that apologizing is is something that insecure people really can't do. It's terrifying for them. Right. So the people that are like. I've never apologized. That's that's just a way of going, I am terrified 24-7. Yeah, which, I mean, basically describes any person who self-describes as an alpha male or something like that. That's <laughs> oh what they, they are, a terrified little boy. I mean, we know that. You know, that's just yeah. obvious. It's funny you mentioned that you, know, you, you started with open mics or whatever, because there seems to be now, there's like this unholy pipeline of sort of failed comedians to you know, alt-right and whatever personalities. And I I think I've figured out, I was just thinking about this the other night, like one solution to this might be go to a bunch, we we all need to start going to a bunch of open mics and applauding wildly and making these people feel good so that they don't sit there. I want to amend that statement. I remember I made that statement, failed. I said said to him like, you know, the the failed comedians often become right-wing trolls or, you know, alt-right guys. But the thing is, here's one thing I was wrong about. They're not failed comedians because they were never comedians to begin with. I would almost respect them if they were like, I slugged away for eight years and got nowhere. Like, okay, I understand your frustration. When you look into these guys' CVs, they did open mics for two months and it and they weren't immediately stars and then they they their brains fritzed out and they metastasized that initial failure which every comedian has every by the way if if two months of failure makes you alt right then i should be a sturman commando or something because <laughs> the first 8 years of my career was just death but i stuck with it right and these people they can't stick with things and they, of course they're the first people that yell about participation trophies and right and entitlement and entitlement so they weren't even comedians to begin with they they're failed open micers they tried for a couple of months it didn't work out they got scared and then they realized oh but there's this other audience that i can in other words a bad comedian doesn't ever want to take risks on stage and go i don't know if this joke will work let's see right a bad comedian wants to know i want to know the eight or nine things that if i say them i will get applause and laughter and and I don't need to think about that and that's and, and I want to know where that audience is and that's where I will go and so I think that's what leads to there there's a really chilling thing in uh the book cultural amnesia by Clive James where he talks about when the Nazis annexed Vienna a lot of the hatred for the Jews came from their jealousy of the cabaret performers of people like Egon Friedel and Peter Altenberg and, and the cafe wits that were sitting there and one of the lines is the Nazis wanted their jokes to be the funny ones and the only way they knew how to get that was to kick these people to death when they annexed Vienna, the first people they went after were the comedians. They went after the cabaret performers Mm -hmm. because a lot of these guys were the people sitting in the audience going, my jokes are funny. (laughs) And um, that was, those are the first people that they went after. And it really shows you that a lot of these alt-right personalities then end up going on stand-up tours where they pack the audience with just their, like they're not going in front of an indifferent audience and winning them over. Like they already know the audience is on their side thinks the way that they do it's it's like a it's like a play school version of a comedy club right or a nerf version of a comedy club where they can be safe and i can good i can say my 
eight or nine ideas and that will get laughter and good. I don't need to worry about any controversy. And of course they, and then of course they paint themselves as we are the ballsiest, most risk-taking comedians. Like then go into a regular comedy club and do that. Right. But they can't. In the same way that it's easy to just say, I'm not going to apologize as opposed to doing the work and, you know, apologizing if, if, if you've done something wrong. It's easier to, instead of bombing at an open mic and saying, okay, I need to work on my jokes. These aren't funny. Clearly nobody yes. thinks these are funny. But it's easier to just say, you know, oh, they didn't like me because I'm a white male or I'm a straight, yeah. I'm a straight guy and nobody wants to hear from me anymore. And isn't this horrible? It's just so much easier to do that. Yeah. And also the thing that people forget is the way to become a really, really good comedian. And I was very lucky to have this when I was coming up is you surround yourself with people that are a funnier than you, which I think a lot of these people's ego can't handle and b people that are kind of harsh. They're not mean people, but they're very, very truthful to you. When you first start as an open micer and you're not doing well, the other comedians will let you know very, very, very quickly. And that makes you funnier or you um, flinch from that and you run away from that. I've luckily always had people around me, friends like, you know, Blaine Capatch and Brian Posehn, people like that, that were able to go, dude, the, come on, that that's so lame. Work a little better on that one. Oh, and they are so much funnier than you too. I openly say they are yeah. so much funnier than me. <laughs> and I was always lucky to come up with around people like Greg Proops and Karen Kilgariff and Paul F. Tompkins and Zach Alifanakis and and Andy Kindler and Dave Attell, people that were just so much that, that I always had to strive to be at their level. And that made me good. And a lot of people, unfortunately, they want to be the quote unquote alpha in the room and they will surround themselves with betas and failures just to have that because they're so insecure. But really committing to comedy means you hang out with really funny people who are kind of harsh in their assessment of you. And that harshness is a blessing. That saved me so much embarrassment, being around people that were like, dude, come on. Right. No, lame. And you can tell when comedians lose, when some comedians get so big, they don't have those people around them to go, uh, come on, no, just please work better at that. That's lame. Yeah, that sounds like some people I know in the news <laughs> comedy business. I rewatched last night uh your most recent netflix special we are we all scream and yeah i watched it when it first came out and i remember loving it and then i watched it again last night and i was just i was shocked at how often i was literally laughing out loud wow thanks man yeah i think it might be my favorite special of yours now damn thank you but of course if i watched another one tomorrow maybe that <laughs> would take its place but but it's so good but you said you said a whole bunch of things that i really liked you said one thing that i that i loved and i loved it for the best possible reason which obviously is that it was similar to something that I've been saying. And you talked about being woke and that, you know, you think you're pretty woke these days. And then you said, but I won't be someday. And basically yeah. you said, because progress steamrolls you. And what yeah. I've been saying is that every one of these guys, and it's pretty much always, it's a white guy, it's a Bill Maher, it's someone like that. All these guys who say, I didn't move right, the Democrats move left or something like that. That is exactly <laughs> what they're going through. Yeah. In their heads, they're still progressive because they've always thought of themselves as progressive. Right. Then they don't understand that. By definition, progressive is constantly changing and evolving. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's okay to get to an age where you're like, I've done my part. It's time to, I, I wish more people could be like, at the, that character who's, a, by the way, is, is a horrible, racist, psychotic character, but Ethan Edwards at the end of The Searchers, John Ford's The Searchers, where he's like, I have helped create a more progressive world, 
but in helping to create it, I need to step the fuck aside. And like I did my part, I need to step aside and go wander the winds for a while. Again, especially if you get into comedy, you have said yes to a very ephemeral art form that that has the shortest shelf life, that spoils quicker than anything else. You've said yes to that. And part of that is you will get to a point. I mean, some people, true geniuses like George Carlin managed to, I think, overcome that, but that's because he's, he was George fucking Carlin. Yes. But a lot of times you're going to get to a point where it's like, oh, okay, you're not the edgiest, funniest person in the room anymore. You can still be funny, but always wanting to be the new thing. There's a certain disease that certain comedians get, I'm not going to name them, where they get to an age and what they'll do is they'll go, the last time comedy was funny was, and you can almost go, let me guess, when you were like 23 or 22 years old, when you <laughs> right. were the new thing, right. and there were certain comedians that, it's like, y- yes, you did help create something, and you did help move it forward, but the thing itself will keep moving forward. It won't stop at you. And it's a very, very, I think, very boomer attitude of like, it should all end with me. Like, there should be nothing beyond me. And it's like, no, sorry, there's been better music since your music. There's been better movies. There's been better books. And there are way better comedians now from when I was coming up. And, and I came up with amazing comedians. I came up with Mr. Show. I came up with Zach Galifianakis and Sarah Silverman and, you know, all these incredible minds. But now there are even better people out there doing it. And that's good. Wouldn't it be horrible if you were the last innovative new thing in your art form? What a miserable life that would be. I mean, no, it would be good for me personally, but <laughs> I, I, yes, overall, I agree yeah. with you. It would be a bad thing. And and it's never going to be an actual thing. It's just going to be, as you said, it's a very boomer mentality. And you talk in the special, you do a, you know, I guess what Andy Kindler would refer to as a chunk. <laughs> a nice chunk, a nice chunk. I love that word. Um, and I love it when he uses it. You want to hear my impression? Of, here's my impression. Here's my impression of Andy Kindler as Ben Franklin. You want to hear it? <laughs> Please. Early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and a third thing that you would put in there, and it would be the kicker that I didn't, I haven't written that one down yet. I will get to it. Uh, that's amazing. He is, yeah. he is. I love him so much. Andy Kindler in a weird, in a very, Andy Kindler in a bizarre way. I also think Maria Bamford might actually be two of the comedians from our generation that actually don't age out. Yes. Because Andy is actually embracing that I'm old and I do not. There are certain things I cannot go along with. And it's, but it's so honest that it's actually kind of bracing. And Maria is so absolutely present almost to a fault on stage that, and because she is so absolutely present in all of her insecurities and all of her faults that I could see her being just this person you will always go and see. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, there's something I've really been needing to get off of my chest lately, which is that everyone and their mother should listen to the Andre 3000 album because it lifts my spirits on a regular basis, 1000%. We all carry around different problems, big and small. And let's be honest, when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. That's where therapy comes in. It's like this safe space where you can unload all those burdens and start figuring out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy can make a difference. I know this from firsthand experience. And it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who wants to improve their mental well-being. Therapy can help you learn coping skills. It can teach you how to set better boundaries. And it can make you be a better version of yourself. If you're considering therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, which means it's convenient, flexible, and fits into your schedule seamlessly. Plus, getting started is as easy as filling out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And the best part, you can switch therapists anytime at no additional charge. So why wait? Take that first step towards a happier, healthier you with BetterHelp. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash the new abnormal today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash the new abnormal stand up yeah she is beyond amazing and then the thing about kindler is one of the other reasons i think he's aging well is because he's always been old yeah he was 83 years old when he was 15 yes, exactly god that'd be an amazing show young kindler do a show <laughs> called young kindler but even then he's like this you know this <laughs> this rolling stones black and blue album i I'd rather be beaten black and blue. This is temp. What is this? Like, he's just already angry at everything he's listening to. <laughs> uh, it's a really hard thing as you get older to embrace that there's shit that I don't get. But say it in a way that you're not condemning what's coming up. I see a lot of people that when they get older, it's like, well, I'm condemning whatever's new and saying it's stupid and it was only good. It's the, it's the classic 80s road comedian, you know, non-fat latte. What the hell happened to a black coffee? Right. Um, it's like, well, because lattes are actually tastier and, and something better came along. It's okay. Um, but then there's people like, like Eddie Pepitone and Tom Papa that actually – it's not that they're putting down what's new. They're just, they are showing you there is a certain generation that is, I am, this is beyond my understanding and I, and I cannot handle this right now. And it's so refreshing to see someone comfortable enough to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, a, a thing I've said on the show a bunch of times is I see, you know, I have nieces, one in her early 20s, one in her late teens, and I see how comfortable they are with just talking about their non-binary friends. And it's a way that at my age, I can't be as comfortable with it even though I'm all for it and I don't want to see any bigotry against it. And, yeah. uh, you know, but they are just so comfortable with the language because of their age in the same way that I think I always say our generation, Gen X, I think we were the first 
generation to be comfortable with gayness for lack of a, you know, or for what, however you want to put it. Yeah. My daughter and her friends are in middle school. Very, very open. Some of her friends are binary. Some are bi. They literally do not care. It's not like a, oh my God. Oh my God. Did you hear about, it? it's just, and some of them were like, I thought I was bi. Now I think I'm straight. And and to that, that's not a big deal either. That was another big thing, I think from boomers and even from Gen X, which is like, you were gay last week. Right. Yeah. I was experimenting. I, like now it's so fluid with these new kids. And I think that's what's one of the things that's scaring a lot of these evangelicals and conservatives is there won't even be a battleground about it in 10 years. Nobody will care. And they're going to lose a big part of their voting and uh, election power because these, I think in 10 years, the idea of, I remember um, about 10 years ago, or maybe 20 years ago was when gay, lesbian, bi, and trans clubs started showing up in high schools. Mm -hmm. I think gay, lesbian, bi, and trans clubs are going to become archaic because kids now are like, wait a minute, why did you have a club? What, did you just go to the club and be gay? Like, because everyone's going to be so open about what they are. They're just going to go do what, you know what I mean? Like, they're just going to go do whatever they want to do. You know, maybe it'll be there for a historical sense, but the idea of like the gays need a special club, it's like, uh, a, I'm gay. No one gives a shit. And I play football. Um, I do theater and I like, no one's going to care. No, look, that's obviously the ideal world is gay people, queer people, whatever, don't need a safe space. Exactly. I definitely used to believe as you believe that in 10 years, none of this will be an issue anymore. I'm a little more nervous now seeing how things have been getting rolled back. Well, you're right. Actually. Yeah. Let me, let me take that back. I am actually nervous because of this, like you and I were talking about, because it is so fluid and because kids are so comfortable, the backlash is be- is becoming very violent now, very violent. And there's a lot of, um, unfortunately, a lot of kids that are being, again, the group that is always yelling about where you're indoctrinating kids into gay, but they're indoctrinating kids into gay bashing and of course. Um, LGBTQ hatred and, you know, applauding violence against these people. So, you know, it's going to, we'll see how this, I hope it turns out well, but I think it's going to be ugly for a while. That's the thing. I mean, at least in the short term, you know, I see what's happening to, to trans people and, and queer people. And it's just, it's it's so frightening. And it's, it gets upped every day. You talk about doubling down. It's almost like the transphobes and homophobes are trying to outdo each other for cruelty. Yeah. And it's almost like they're like, you know, that's not cruel enough. Here's what I'm doing. So uh, I don't know. It's that scary. Yeah. It, to me, it feels like it's the most Nazi ish of all the, all the phobes and hatred. Yes. It seems to be to me what's going on, you know, with the transphobes and, and, and queer phobia and all that stuff. The one um, hopeful beacon I have is historically a large percentage of, leaders of hate groups, whether they be anti-Semitic or anti-Black and now anti-LGBTQ, a big percentage of hate group leaders end up getting killed by their own followers because their followers cross a line of hatred that even they can't cross. And then the followers are like, you've betrayed us. And then they attack them and kill them. There are certain hate leaders that I would love if that happened to them. Not that they'd be killed, but that they'd be exiled and turned on by their own people, because that tends to be what happens to these people. Yeah, I'm not going to pretend that that would 
know, <laughs> without actually saying certain things, I'm not going to pretend yes. that I would shed uh, many a tear if such a thing happened. But I do want to move to some like lighter type stuff and stuff that, that's sort of about your career. Oh, okay. I did not realize that your first acting job was on Seinfeld. And obviously, <laughs> I, you know, I've seen enough. Seinfeld episodes over and over and over and over again to yeah. know that you did play a video clerk in an episode. Right. <laughs> but I was doing a search because I wanted to see if I could find anything else about more about it. And I saw a tweet of yours from 2020. Can you tell the story? Yes. It was my first act. It was how I got my my after card. This is back when there were after cards. And um I was and I was just nervous. I literally had three. You know, I'm, I'm sorry, sir. It doesn't work that way. Right. And I had worked those words over in my head a million times, and I'm freaking out. And, and Jason Alexander, God bless him, he could tell, like he could just sense, like, oh, this kid's really nervous. Right before they called action, he like leaned forward and goes, "Not too late to be fired, Patton." And then um, he, <laughs> he leaned back, and it made me laugh so hard, and it loosened me up. So that's why. I seem so loose because he gave me the gift of laughing at what was this really horrible moment and it, yeah. and it calmed me down. And I've heard more stories about that of people like giving someone else that gift of like making them laugh when they're that nervous. And um, there was a great one. I think Amy Poehler was on SNL and they were getting to it. And her, I think one of her parents had died and she was just devastated, but she was trying to be a professional and get through the show. And, and John Hamm was the host and he went up to her and he was like, look, I know um, I can't even imagine what you're going through right now. And I, I'm really, really sorry, but this is a huge shot for my career and I can't have you fucking it up. And she <laughs> laughed. So like it like, laughed and then also cried. Like it just, it, it like saved her. Uh -huh. And that's what, that's a great thing that comedians can do for each other is they can, yes. we know exactly how to get each other to laugh when things are bad. It was a moment after my, when my wife passed away, when I was went out to dinner with a couple of comedian friends and Todd Glass, Todd Glass, who was a force of nature. Yes. One of those guys that when he's on your show, and I've had this happen on my show, and I know Sarah Sorbonne does this, where it's like, yes, this is Patton Oswalt and friends. Todd, you're going to go on last. I'm not following you. You will be going on last. There's no, no one's going on after you. He gave me this, he gave me this envelope. He was like, you can open this later if you want to. I just wrote something. I think, I hope it'll help you out. You know, I know what you're going through right now. Like, okay. And then we're in, he's like, if you want to open it now, you can read it. I won't be embarrassed or anything like that. I'm like, really? He goes, yeah, yeah. So he's literally torn the corner off of a piece of legal paper and it just says, I patent. <laughs> and it made me laugh so hard. It was not even an attempt at helping me. It was, that's what made it so hilarious. But again, you have to have a, that absurdist had to fear to know how to get away with that. And it was just, you know, Jason Alexander had it. John Hamm had it. Todd Glass has it in spades. He's the master yeah. at it, you know. And Jason, you didn't, he didn't know you at all, right? Because you were just. No, but he's such a pro and he's, yeah. been, you know, he'd been acting for so long. He's just that thing. He can just tell like, oh, look at this kid. Oh my God. Okay, let, let's, let's loosen him up. And then he just helped me out. It was perfect. There's. This this is really getting in the weeds. In that episode, you mentioned the line you said, you know, that that's not how it works. But you, you say it as kind of a question, like you inflect up at the end. You say, that's not how it works. And I always wondered why. 
Like, I love it. It makes me laugh every time. But I was like, I wonder if he chose that or if that was he was told. No, what happened was when I, I the way the way I got the part was I auditioned for Jerry and Larry. And I didn't realize I did this. But when they were reading the lines to me where he's bothering me, because I'd worked in retail for years, I subconsciously did this thing where, and Larry told me this later, he's like, I kind of looked up and looked around for another employee to hand this guy off to, which uh-huh. is what you do in retail when you have someone <laughs> right. shitty. And then right. I also said it when that, that's a that's a retail person's way of going. Kind of doesn't work that like you agree with me, right? Right. Doesn't work that like, <laughs> like you make them a colleague in your dismissal of them. So if you make it like it's almost like I'm now giving a mini seminar in how you're fucking up, and that's a way to get complicity from the person that's being an asshole, and it's very helpful. Wow. Okay, let's move on to your next line, and I want to analyze that <laughs> one to death too. <laughs> No, that's just that's just one of those things that has always stuck with me because I obviously I have seen Seinfeld way too many times. And so I know these weird things. Anyone who's ever worked retail will tell you that those two things. First, who can I give this guy to? Right. Who to pass him out to? And then you agree with me, right? Doesn't work right. this way. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> <laughs> that's years okay. of trauma, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> now jumping to something slightly more recent, is there any chance we're ever getting more Modoc? As r- right now, no, um, it is not coming back. But I mean, I know that Modoc is in this Quantum Mania film. Can you explain to our to our listeners? who Modoc is and what the show was because it's it was so good. Thank you. Modoc was a Captain America villain in the 60s and I call Modoc Jack Kirby in a bad mood. It, it's a <laughs> giant floating head <laughs> with little tiny arms and legs and this little power sled. And he had a little jewel in his head that would shoot beams and kill people and he it, it was so clearly like Stanley was like, we need a new villain. And it was like 4.51 p.m. And Kirby's like, I was going to fucking leak. God damn it. And he just <laughs> drew. So he's just all angry. He's just this giant floating mutated head who's a super genius and resents not only the heroes, but he resents all the other villains for treating him like crap. And that's what that's what we, me and uh, my, my co-writer, Jordan Blum, who we do the comic Minor Threats I do with. He's an amazing writer. And he just, we really come up with the idea of, well, Modoc. The ultimate, because his thing is, these world conquerors have to sacrifice family and love and relationships to conquer the world. Modoc does not compromise. I will rule the world. I will also have a family that loves me, that, and I will live in the suburbs with them. And that tension makes everything go haywire. And his family doesn't love him. Yeah, well, the, his family has been tolerating him, which he thinks is love. But no, we right. we really wanted to embrace the idea at the end of season one that the wife is like, this isn't working and we're getting divorced and they actually are getting divorced. And then that was going to be season two was going to be him dealing with being a divorced dad. We were not going to do that thing of like every week, the sitcom husband completely fucks up. And then at the end, the woman's like, I love you. Like, no, this, these people should be divorced. And that's what the show is going to be about now. Uh, We should also, (laughs) we should mention that, well, so the show was, it was like stop motion animated, right? Yeah. Stupid Buddy, uh, Seth Green's company did it. um, Great. Yeah. It looked Animation, great. um, Yeah, it looked amazing. And it had that big Kirby shapes, big Kirby colors. And, And again, huge Kirby emotions about regular everyday stuff like, you know, planning your daughter's quinceanera, trying to help your son get a date for the prom and and helping him be more confident, but done at Kirby levels of emotion. And at the same time, also fighting to keep his company 
aim advanced idea mechanics and rule the world, but everything's going wrong. Like just, right. we just wanted to make it the biggest mess that we could. And we, and we succeeded. <laughs> it you was absolutely really fun. Did. Yeah. You absolutely did. And Hulu, I think made a big mistake not renewing it, but I agree. What do I know? Well, it was also bizarre at Marvel at the time, I think was going through some kind of shakeup. We would ask for certain characters who were like, well, they're not going to give us this character. And they would give us to us. They would let us use Madam Mask and Mr. Sinister and Iron Man and Thor and these huge, you know, A-list properties. And then we would ask for Stilt Man. They were like, no, you can't have Stilt Man. And like, why? Like, are you saving him? Like, did Joaquin Phoenix say he would play Stiltman? Why can't we have Stiltman? Like, we had to fight. It was the shittiest characters we had to fight for. Like, Tatterdemalion, Pound Cakes, and people like that. These minor, minor villains. They were like, I don't know. And then, but the big ones are like, absolutely, go ahead. We're like, what is happening? So that was, that was very bizarre. That's so weird. So maybe, so you're saying maybe we're getting a Stiltman Disney Plus series. I don't know, but I mean, but Stiltman's the stupidest villain. He's so <laughs> dumb. You can't do anything with him. That was the, we were going to use him for one joke. That's all he's good for. Sorry. <laughs> well, the thing is, like, I, you know, I did some research and I discovered, I didn't even realize you, you are halfway to an EGOT. Oh yeah, that's right. Which is an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. And so I, I now want to start an EGOT for MODOK campaign. <laughs> EGOT for MODOK. Oh, that would be delightful. Oh, he deserves it. If you need a hashtag. Yeah. Please uh, feel free to use that. That'd be great. So you are now the second guest I've had. Paul Tompkins was the first who has a little role in Weird, the Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, Yes. I was supposed to play Dr. Demento, and I broke my foot the week before they were supposed to start shooting. Oh. And they shot that They shot that brilliant film. It is a brilliant film, Andy. I can't wait to see it. It is brilliant. They shot that thing in 18 days. There was no extra time. They're like, you're on a cart. Like, we can't. There's just no way we can pull this off. And luckily, Rain Wilson stepped in, who's great. But I have a little cameo in a nightclub that was really, really fun to shoot. And you'll, you'll be able to spot me pretty easily. Uh, according to IMDb, you have a key role as, I think it's NBC reporter. Oh, no, that's not me. Is, oh, so no. that's not accurate. Oh. No, 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 no. I am, I am a drunken heckler. Yeah. Oh, okay. Excellent. Uh, that must have been incredibly fun to shoot, even just to be a, a small part of it. It was amazing. And Daniel Radcliffe, again, the movie absolutely embraces how completely stupid it is. It's like those early Abrams Zucker Brothers movies where it's just reveling in how stupid it is. But his performance is genuinely Oscar worthy. Like he gets to some real moments of pathos, even though he's going over the top. It is one of the best performances of the year. Like I was stunned. Radcliffe is fantastic. And yes, he has just made like the most interesting career choices of anyone that's come out of like this blockbuster series of movies has ever made. I think right now, him, Elijah Wood, yep. Robert Pattinson have all taken their massive franchise bucks and they've just turned it into I'm now I get to do just interesting stuff for the rest of my career. Right. That's all I get to do. And, and all they're doing is weird, interesting stuff that that they're into clearly Elijah. I mean, Elijah barely is in movies. He's like producing stuff and running a spectra vision and putting out like the most bizarre edgy uh, movies you've ever like, like, and he, he has a real eye and a brain for it. Like he's going to be, I mean, he's still a great actor, but my God, the stuff that he's doing 
in terms of getting movies made is stunning. He did that movie. I'm now blanking on the name of it. I'm, I'm trying to quickly look it up. Was it Come to Daddy? Are you familiar with this? No. It's a, a little in, indie film, and it was really, really good. And just really, like, it's like a, a horror movie slash comedy. And it's, it's like you said, like, he's just making, incre- this is Elijah Wood, he's making incredibly interesting choices, and I totally agree. It feels like he's doing what George Harrison did with handmade films, which is, uh, I just want to see this. I don't care if anyone else even comes and watches it. I just want to see how this gets made. Like, right. that it, that seems to be how he picks scripts. Yeah, it's just amazing. And so much, just so much credit to him and Radcliffe and, and Pattinson, too. I always, yeah. I don't think of him that way because I wasn't into the Twilight movie. So I only know him from the more interesting choices that he's made since those. But that's why he did, he did those. Right. So he's like, well, now I got freedom. I can go work with who I want to work with. And that's clearly all he's doing. Yeah. And he was a great Batman. And it's fascinating. And he was a great Batman. Yeah. I love that movie a lot. That's the one Batman that really leaned into that. Oh, this guy's mentally ill. Yes. Like this isn't heroic. This is a rich guy dressing like a flying rat. (laughs) <laughs> and beating up poor people. This isn't, something's wrong here. And he really embraced that. It was pretty cool. Yeah. No, it's, it's really good. So before I let you go, one of the things you talk about in We All Scream is how you you had so much stuff planned to do during lockdown. And then like most of us, you never got around to it. Oh, God. One of the things you talked about was exercising. And you, you talked about how you bought something called a rebounder, which is this little trampoline-like thing. And then you basically never used it. I just wanted to commiserate with you by saying this may be even worse. I bought the Nintendo Switch Ring Fit Adventure oh, no. game. Oh, no. And believe me, it was hard to find because during lockdown, everybody wanted it. Yeah, everyone wanted that thing. And you had to buy it and it came with a, a sensor that went around your leg and another one I think went around <laughs> your arm or you just use it. I don't know. And I searched everywhere to find it and finally after like a month, I think, I found it at some store in North Carolina online and ordered it. To this day, it is has not moved out of the package. Of course not. That's our lives. That's it. Yes. Ugh. <laughs> My very last question is, earlier you were talking about boomers and you do a thing, you you have a thing in your special where you say that, you know, you think that of 2016 as sort of boomers' last gasp, which I hope to God is true. I yeah, sometimes, I sometimes, I used to think that and now I'm not so sure. But the point I want to get to is maybe just because every generation thinks this, but I really thought Generation X, I thought we were going to be better. <laughs> and I still have some hope for that. But as you put it in the special, you said, hold on, you, know, you said our temper tantrum is going to be off the charts. And that got me really nervous. Yeah, I mean, well, the one hope I have for Gen X is we're the one generation of, of all them, although I think Gen Z and the millennials might even be better, but we do have programmed into our DNA the idea of aging out and stepping aside gracefully. We might not actually have a temper tantrum or we might actually do the classic Oh, when it's time to go, I'll be cool about going. And then when it does come time to go, we'll we'll be so uncool and we'll do something even worse. I don't know. Because there still is a big section of Gen X that has that whole jam the culture, man, smash the system. <laughs> right. The quicker we smash it, the quicker there'll be a revolution. You're like, no, that's not how it works. So <laughs> But I'm holding out hope that we will actually live up to our 
when it comes time to go, we're just going to go. Yeah, and it's probably helpful that we were never really there. Yes, exactly. In a lot of so ways. Not, so it's not like we can go, oh, I mean, oh my God, what kind of mark have I left on the world? A lot of us didn't want to leave a mark. That was the whole, right. that was the status was like, no, I didn't, I wasn't really here. Something kind of cool about that. Right. We made some good music in the 90s. Yeah, we did. So there you go. We made some good music and we stayed out of everybody's way. That's a good legacy. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> let's hope, and let's hope it ends with that. Yeah. God, please. Wow. What a what a way to end this podcast. Let's I all know. hope we die quietly. <laughs> I know. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's what you look when when you're Jewish and you host a podcast. That is how you end. Right. All right. All right. Thanks so much, Patton. I really appreciate it. People, if you haven't seen We All Scream, go check that out. Please watch MODOK, even though it's apparently too late to get a second season. Please watch it. Like I said, there's that movie where he does the voice of a rat that I think was mildly popular. <laughs> you can't escape him. He's everywhere anyway. You'll you'll see him whether you want to or not, but you should want to. Patton, thank you so much. You'll, you'll never escape me. All right. Thanks, Andy. Hope you enjoyed checking out this episode of The New Abnormal. We're back every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend and keep the conversation going. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.